Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 7. They Live. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync to play along with the film we discuss. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can download the commentary from iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the initial DVD release of They Live from 2001. If you have the Blu-ray, you will have to press play a whole second early. If you press play on the Blu-ray now and the DVD now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. This is one of the most on-the-nose films I have ever seen. It is amazing not just in the film subtext, which of course everyone could see from the premiere, but it had an interesting production history as well. Now it's time to open your eyes, and in this case, the Universal logo kinds of looks like an oval eye, and what do we see? Look closer. There are three optical illusions in the very first 30 seconds. The first is the main title, which turns out to be graffiti. You'll notice what looks like some slums and a hypodermic needle pointing to a dominant church on the right. It is kind of cartoonish, especially the spray artist who is facing the church. Then the camera tracks left, but the train is moving right. This confuses the viewer as to what is actually moving. Both are. And on one train car, you can clearly see the words shock control. The caboose brings us the end of the line, and we get a sense from the very beginning of the story that it is actually the end of our hero's story. Nada. Nada is, of course, Spanish for nothing. And not only does Nada have practically nothing in terms of material wealth, he doesn't seem to have anything else. He doesn't have a past, as far as we know, only working in Denver, and because we pick him up at the end of the line, we can assume he doesn't have a future. We assume he has ridden the train here to Los Angeles, and this harkens back to the era of the Great Depression, when the only way for millions of Americans to go anywhere throughout the country was to illegally hop freight trains. Our star is the former professional wrestler Roderick George Toombs, who we know as Rowdy Roddy Piper, whom I remember very well from WrestleMania 3, which is where he met one of his biggest fans, Hollywood director John Carpenter. You'll see the credit for Frank Armitage, which is an alias, Frank Armitage is a character in a fantasy author H.P. Lovecraft's popular novel, The Dunwich Horror, a novel we know was read and loved by John Carpenter, who assumed the alias for this film. So he has four credits, created, directed, music, and screenwriting. Pretty impressive. Roddy Piper here has an interesting gait, the way he carries himself, and I've only seen three people walk with this type of gait. The third person is Denzel Washington, one of my favorite actors, and the first is Toshira Mufune, 
Out of those two, I see Piper as the latter. He reminds me most of Yojimbo, sauntering into town, not afraid to handle himself. But in the end, the biggest difference is Yojimbo knows exactly what's going on. And Nada, as you can tell, doesn't have a clue. The man in a wheelchair we assume to be a veteran. Another disappointed person in a room of the unemployed who are looking for a job. It has been posited that the woman Nada is talking to is a ghoul. But I don't think so. I don't think ghouls work here. I think she really doesn't have sympathy for the people she was paid to help. And in the end, programmed to be just as much as a victim as they are. The film is noticeable for a number of reasons. It is rather scummy looking because there are not a lot of sets. This was shot on location in and near downtown Los Angeles in 1988. The opening credits shows real homeless people, not like the actors we later see in Justiceville that look somewhat unlikely to be candidates for homelessness. Mixed with this is the reality of the missing American dream and they live, the car. The only character who has one is Meg Foster, and we learn later that she's a collaborator. In addition, we have the ghouls, which draw the highest criticism in form of rubber masks. The masks have been called every name of the book from cheesy to bad to campy. So the film is dominated by foot traffic because of the lack of the car. And it is dominated by locations. It is dominated by cheap productions. And as a whole, this is reflective of the $4 million budget the film operated on. $4 million is not a lot of money, but in that $4 million, John Carpenter made not only what may be the most critical success of his career, but one of the most important films of the 1980s. This commercial is to remind you how great America is. Rushmore, a bald eagle, a Native American, a cowboy, read Reagan, and what looks like a bunch of white yuppies playing basketball. We already see the verisimilitude, the homeless people we saw earlier do not tell us we live in such a great country, and we see the audience, the people who are lured into believing everything is fine. And that shot was a blatant commentary on race. This is a world in which Reagan's trickle-down economics, which George Bush first criticized and then embraced, has clearly not helped the people. I read a lot about the working class in this film. They're not working class, they are working poor. And Piper has said that he drew from his own homeless experience for the film. And looking at the depression on his face in this shot, I believe him. This shows one of the film's strength and casting characters, not huge Hollywood actors. All of this together gives the film a kind of documentary feel to it. The helicopter portends evil in a kind of conspiratorial feel like the X-Files. We'll get into conspiracy theories later on. Here, Nada asks for the shop steward because there are immigrants that are obviously not in the Union. This means his self-reliance sets him apart from the pack, so we know that Nada isn't the sheep we have seen so far. If you notice, he doesn't watch a lot of TV. Since I mentioned Reagan, I might as well just dive into it. This is seen as a hugely anti-Reagan movie, unlike Ghostbusters. Carpenter has interviews on YouTube where he discusses his disgust of Reagan. You can't separate the film from Reagan like you can't separate the 1980s from Reagan. I don't think you'd have this film if you didn't have Ronald Reagan. The traditional narrative is one I find confusing, even as you watch Nada and Frank, 
Apparently they are working some trickle-down jobs that everyone says never happened, so let's back up. Everyone knows the 1960s were a tumultuous time, but despite everything that happened, we managed to progress more of a society in the 60s than we had since the 30s, so that was overdue. In the 1970s, we were hit with a huge number of issues as Americans, Vietnam, Watergate, inflation, stagnation, and though we changed parties to get back on track, it seemed like everything just got worse. We forget now the successes Carter had with the Camp David Accords and his admirable, if impractical, energy plan, and we only remember him for the hostage crisis in Iran and giving away the Panama Canal. Reagan came to change all of this, and in contrast to Carter's disastrous crisis of confidence speech, Reagan talked about how great America was, and he didn't blame Americans, which Carter seemed to be doing. This coincided with the 80s being a time of the image. Practically everyone had color TV by then, newspapers were printed in color, cable spread like wildfire in the late 70s and early 1980s, so things were tough before Reagan became president, and had been tough for the previous 10 years. So it's not like Reagan became president and now all of a sudden homelessness is a problem. It's been a problem. It's still a problem. The dark mark is this film was made in 1988, and after two terms, it didn't seem like Reagan did anything about it. One of the powerful images of the 80s is now what we call big hair or mullets or whatever the hell Piper has on his head. By the 2000s, we called bands that had big hair, bands like Poison and Warrant and Rat, Cock Rock. This emerging masculinity, or some would say an excess of masculinity, is usually found in Sylvester Stallone's Rambo movies or Chuck Norris's M.I.A. movies, both ostensibly about Vietnam. But if you read two fantastic books by Susan Jeffords, The Remasculinization of America and Hard Bodies, Masculinity in Reagan America, you can see this arch of the 1980s of big hair actors with cock rock soundtracks really rejecting these soft overtures from the 70s about men being wounded, men not being men, men being feminized, not having to be tough, etc. Love means never having to say you're sorry, all that bullshit. And for some reason, all these horrible tropes that you see in Lone Wolf McQuaid and Invasion USA, or even Lethal Weapon, which is the granddaddy of man emerging from a feminine state and embracing his masculinity, all of that is somehow Reagan's fault. The thrown-together lot where the homeless are gathering is called Justiceville, an irony since there is no justice being done. It reminds me of a Hooverville from the 1930s. No one here is very masculine except for Frank and Nada. Everyone else here, including the kids, are all feminized. This is the scene that hurts me the most. When Nada says, I believe in America, it just chills me to the bone. Look at Nada. He's the right age to have a father who used to kill Nazis for a living. Frank is the right age to see his father lynched and spend his youth getting beaten up on the streets. So at this point, Frank doesn't really believe in America because it hasn't really treated him right to begin with. And Nada believes in it, but it's turned on him recently. So he still has a dream, but Frank is convinced it's nearly flushed down the toilet. And if this isn't depressing enough, both of them are in for a real eye-opener and about two reels. And Nada is going to discover that what he thinks is America doesn't even exist, and Frank is going to find out things are way more fucked up than he ever thought possible, even for a black man spending his teenager years in the 60s. I believe in America. That is a mindfuck. If I had thought this through my tender age when I saw this theater, I would have walked out. If I saw this while I was in my political height of consciousness, I think I would have shot myself. 
if you have to take this movie as satire, you can't take it as literal, because if you lose your belief in America, as Nada and Frank do, then your options are to become a fascist just to survive or go postal before being cut down yourself. It is also, don't forget this, something that the ghouls want you to believe in so they can keep exploiting you. So that isn't a throwaway line. In a real sense, that line is the heart of the movie, and Carpenter is brilliant to evoke that sense of everything that we believe in because it is everything others want to destroy. Let's focus on Frank and Naughty here because there's something going on here that I think is important. Some have called it gay porn, to which I say, what kind of a movie is this really? The only connection to porn and They Live that I can see is the fact that Carpenter worked on several porn films in the 70s, when like a lot of those guys, Wes Craven included, they took the work that was available to learn what they could, and they moved on hoping no one would notice. Largely, the only people who know who worked in porn in the 70s are the other people who worked on porn in the 70s. A quick aside here to TV. There are TVs all over this film, and you'll see obvious swipes at consumer culture at the 5, 11, and 29-minute marks. My favorite one is the girl who wants to be an actress, and she looks like she's having an orgasm or maybe being taken by the rapture. She even says she'll never grow old and never die. The notion that TVs are a kind of visual lombotomy isn't new. David Cronenberg gave us Videodrome in 1983. The idea of TV turning its audience into brainwashed followers goes back decades, but was smartly conveyed in Michael Glazer's The Running Man in 1987. Paul Verhoeven very smartly explored TV as propaganda in Robocop in 1987. But if you're familiar with Starship Troopers, then you'll see where all of this was heading, which is fascism. And how else could you describe the ghouls here? Yes, they're capitalists. But while every capitalist may not be a fascist, it is completely true that every fascist is a capitalist. I want to back up and apologize. I was Paul Michael Glaser, the director of Running Man. So back to Piper and David, who have a chemistry on screen that is really striking. They get along very well, perhaps because of all that practicing in Carpenter's backyard for the fight scene. If you watch B-rolls of They Live, they're very chummy. This is 1988, a year after Lethal Weapon, and that film redefined black-white relationships and buddy cop movies at the same time. Lethal Weapon is just so good that after 50 or so viewings, you forget the whole race thing. It's a great movie. And now people forget it and how groundbreaking it was because it was a film in which two guys don't carry that baggage around like in a lot of other films. And like They Live... Glover isn't treated as a token, he's treated as an equal. And though They Live starts as not a story, it ends pretty much equal in the third act. What happened to films like these? Lethal Weapon and Run DMC playing Walk This Way with Aerosmith, I think, is responsible for more racial barriers being broken down than most bullshit I see on Twitter. And why is this? Let's look at these actors. This is practically Piper's first film, and what a film. But David has done several films by this point, including Platoon, which he was brilliant in, and of course he got his start in Carpenter's The Thing, which everyone points to as being his end-all, be-all masterpiece. 
look at the contemporary reviews of the thing, all of them are glowing about Keith David. So these two coming from different places, and they mix well here. Piper says it was largely because David was giving him so much help during filming. During the fight, when they're beating the crap out of each other, you see frustration, you see anger, but you do not see rage, and you do not see anything that alludes to race. It's two guys in high school battling out to try to get the other guy to understand. Nowadays, you can't do that. Nowadays, some asshole goes out and gets a gun from his car. So my hat's off to David and Piper for this. Hollywood should make more relationships, as seminal as this is to healing our culture. The church across the street is serving more than just the obvious symbol of hope and redemption in the film. But as the headquarters of the underground revolutionary group fighting the ghouls, what did the Weathermen do? Or the SLA or the Badermeinhof gang do? They robbed banks and skirted underground just like these guys are doing. The church is the symbol on the graffitied wall, remember, and the very first shot. But before you make too much of what this is saying about religion, you need to back off and look at it from the point of view of the generation critiquing Reagan America. This group is the new Weathermen Underground, and like the Weathermen who were founded to overthrow the U.S. government, this group is founded to overthrow the rule of the ghouls. In a sense, as will become apparent, the ghouls are more than just fascists in disguise. They are the fascists in control of the collaborators. So there is a very real correlation here, not just with Nazi Germany, but with the Vichy French. Look at this shot. This movie is $4 million and it looks like $14 million. Brilliant scope and cinematography. Imagine what Carpenter could have done with another million. The ghouls would have looked absolutely frightening. In case you're wondering, They Live made more than its money back. In fact, most of Carpenter's movies made huge amounts of money compared to their budgets. The Prince of Darkness was his previous film, and that movie was very cheap, $13 million, and it made five times more than budget. So that's why They Live was greenlit so fast. Critics didn't really like The Prince of Darkness, which is too bad. It's an amazingly well-done film with a cast of character actors that just blow your mind in every scene. I guess they didn't like the end. I don't know what they were expecting. By the time you get to Prince of Darkness, you should know what Carpenter is up to. The Thing, Christine, Escape from New York, even Big Trouble has a bit of reverse at the end. You can see the confusion on Nada's face, and it's a confusion that you share when you first watch the film. What is this, a meth lab? Nada's just as confused as we are, and two reels into the film we're wondering exactly what is the plot in this movie. I don't know where Carpenter got the name Hoffman or Hoffman lenses, which is what they call the sunglasses, but the creator of lysergic acid diethylidamide, or LSD, was a Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffman. The danger with the Hoffman lenses here is the danger that LSD faces, or even the danger you see in The Matrix a decade later. If you create a hallucination and someone figures out that what they are experiencing is a hallucination, then what is there to stop them from thinking everything is just a mass hallucination? That, I think, is the plot to Christopher Nolan's Inception. Whoa, that was deep. Carpenter had such success at this point, meaning his films had made money, that he was brought in to finish the fiasco that became Memoirs of an Invisible Man. If you've never seen that film, it's not bad, but it's not good. Chevy Chase was the star of that film, which had Sam Neill in it, 
as well, but he had a huge issues with Ivan Reitman, Chevy Chase, I mean, and he was the director of Ghostbusters, if you remember. If you know anything about Chevy Chase, you won't be surprised to know that he had a problem taking direction, so Reitman, who was probably perfect for the film, was jettisoned, and Carpenter took over. The Invisible Man bombed and has a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, and They Live has an 83%. The only one that does better is Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween, which are better than memoirs. It's funny how these things work out. The fact is Carpenter's career is usually reversed from the Hollywood formula. The cheaper his movies are, the greater they tend to be, and the more profound they are, and more importantly in that town, the more money they make. Memoirs of an Invisible Man was tens of millions of dollars, and it stinks, and it never turned a profit. But in this film, the critics were hard. Quote, poor execution, crummy special effects, bad acting, mindless and excessive violence, etc. Unquote. Some people hate it for the very reasons that others love it. The Preacher has an obvious significance now that will become much more important later. And before we get to the riot, we should discuss the score, what some people call a thrifty man's tangerine dream. Blues here equates to the working class. Carpenter is a skilled musician, and he does the soundtrack to most of his movies. He has a remarkable score on Escape from New York that he composed and performed. For They Live and other films, he cut the movie first and then went through the entire film with a keyboard and scored it. Once it was down, it was recorded in one go. And of course I bought it. Unbelievable. And you can check out Yojimbo here. Carpenter is combining elements of science fiction and the western. The plot of They Live is a conventional masculine brew. Stranger comes to town. Stranger sees something fishy going on. Stranger uncovers the truth. Stranger kicks ass and saves the day. And eventually Stranger chews bubblegum. Look at this shot with downtown in the background coming up. It's unreal, or there you go, or real, I should say. What's unreal about it is the blue sky. I've never seen L.A. with a blue sky, and I've never seen homeless people with binoculars before. Usually they're in the pawn shop by the time you have to hit the streets. So you've got a couple of real men here. They're going to save the day, or try to, and this goes back to the whole masculine theme. The very epitome of this 80s uber-masculinization is Arnold Schwarzenegger. He came to the screen in the documentary about Mr. Universe, called Pumping Iron, and in a few short years he had a string of hits that defies the imagination. Conan the Barbarian in 1982, The Terminator in 1984, Predator 1987, The Running Man 1987, even in Red Sonja, a horrible flop. You see an attempt to feminize him by using a female protagonist, and it just doesn't work. The fact that he wasn't actually an American citizen while he was doing most of these films doesn't matter to a lot of academics. So Piper as a wrestler fits well into this genre. As a wrestler, or perhaps we should say as a performer, as an entertainer, he was almost always bad, racist, misogynistic, smart-mouthed, and demented. Hypermasculine, an American hero. And how does this tie back to Reagan? Well, remember the image of the cowboy in the commercial? And this is a kind of Western film. Well, that's Reagan, the California cowboy, the West, etc. So 
So here comes the riot, which was a huge sequence to shoot for the kind of money Carpenter had, or didn't have, I should say. And when the cops start marching across the yard, you get a lot of deja vu. First, it looks a lot like George Lucas's first film, THX 1138. In fact, the way the figures are going to line up here in a couple of minutes, it kind of reminds me of Darth Vader in that first scene in Star Wars. Very totalitarian. Lots of overkill. Helicopters, although they are usually black in these types of movies. That type of stuff. And when I mean overkill, I specifically mean the bulldozer. Isn't that overkill? The role of the preacher now becomes a sensitive issue as we watch him try to be saved by his white brothers in the face of fascism, and that's what this is, bare-bones fascism now. Cops just did this across the country last week. The summer before They Live was released, New York police cleared an East Village park filled with homeless, so Justiceville Wright is not born out of a fog. The real homeless in New York were marred with drug use and organized protests in their defense. Lots of celebrities were there. In the general picture, Reagan is accused of killing the funds for a lot of psychiatric institutions in the 80s, so it became commonplace to see a large portion of the homeless population as mentally ill. This is in contrast to Justiceville's alert cattle that are being led to slaughter. In the end, what do the survivors of the riots do? They go right back to the TV. Bulldozer. Overkill. So we're protecting innocence here, the teen girl. The boy represents not just innocence, but the future as well. But I have to ask, what was the point of clearing out Justiceville if they're still going there the morning after, which we will see? That's kind of a loophole. The red flares make it look like a war zone or an LZ or something from Vietnam. And this very shot, I know, was born out of the Kent State Massacre in 1970. And some of you will say, no, it was a riot, and I will tell you, read a fucking book and admit that every single person killed at Kent State wasn't involved in the protest and wasn't a threat to the police or the National Guard, and that's why I call it a massacre. We call Boston a massacre, and so was Kent State. So in a sense, They Live is telling us about the past because of Kent State. It's telling us about the present due to the riot in New York, but in a large sense, it's also telling us about the future. This is the late 1980s. The early 90s were around the corner. What do you have in the early 1990s, in L.A. specifically? Rodney King. That's what. Now that I've just said Rodney King... I know some of you are rolling your eyes, and that's fine. I'm just saying maybe if you want to beat up an unarmed person under the influence, you should try to do it yourself instead of bringing 15 of your armed buddies. I might be alone in that thought. So with this shot here and this background, what do you see on screen now? Because I see a war. A war against people who don't fit in with the rest of the world. And why don't they fit in? What danger are the people of Justiceville? None. They don't fit in because they are not rich. And that's it. It's not that deep. It's not that profound. Carpenter is wearing it on his sleeve. 
Kier, a Kent State intellectual representing the left, is getting beat to shit. And then we see the preacher get his ass beat like Rodney King. And why is that? Being black is only part of the issue. He is poor. And because he is poor, he will never stop being black. He can't pretend to be anything else because he is poor. And Nada, like the rest of us, just moves on. And that's a sad state that most of us would recognize because we would do it ourselves. It's not because Nada doesn't care. Of course he does. But he does not want to get involved because to get involved would upset our lives. It's why Frank doesn't want to get involved from the get-go. So things have escalated here, and now Nada is thinking exactly like Frank. It's his admission that Frank is right. It's only later that Nada discovers the truth and mentally jumps off the cliff. The window, which is usually an escape route from the house, is now an escape route to the house, in through the back door. And here we have what some have called in the past as a little bit more gay porn. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, and I don't want you to miss it. It's the dealer and the TV and the ad with the girl in it. There are four television advertisements at five and a half minute mark. That's the one with the cowboy, the 11 minute mark, and the 29 minute 11 mark. All of these take a swipe at consumer culture and are supposedly loaded with celebrities. The last one being the most famous, with a woman saying... And I never, never get old. And I never, never die. And here you see the rays of light coming from what? Salvation? Danger? Who knows? And the dealer is trying to escape. We are nearing the 30-minute mark, and I'd like to point out that They Live is neatly divided into three acts, right about each 30-minute mark. This is a 90-minute movie. Remember what I said in my Looker podcast about comedies and how to keep a movie cheap? Danny Boyle, who directed Shallow Grave and Slumdog Millionaire, has this rule. If you want to cut your expenditure by a quarter, then cut the length of your movie by a quarter. Carpenter is deliberately doing this in They Live. He wrote it that way. He directed it that way. He cut it that way. He knew the fight scene was going to be long, and it wound up being longer. So here is the first half hour, and it's pretty stark. The Siege of Justiceville is over, and you see a very stark contrast in the film. Instead of everyone just kind of bumbling along through the film, you'll be exposed to the truth, and what will be extremely hard to live with. This will become the plot of the rest of the film, but more importantly, it will drive the next half hour. When we are at the hour mark, you will see another sharp break. The film is brilliantly divided this way like a Shakespearean play and shows you that Carpenter knows exactly what he's doing. So it's tough when you see stuff like the commercial and the intricate planning of this movie to think of it as a throwaway B-movie that's just cheap and has no value. Invasion of the Body Snatchers was a cheap thrill, and that's a movie that is so important and is studied in film classes 60 years later. The reason I bring this up is to emphasize what I heard Mike Myers say to James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio, which is there is no such thing as high and low art. There is just art, and whether you like it or not, and you'll be surprised how the cheapest art will amaze you. 
The Model T was one of the cheapest cars ever made, and yet as a piece of history and as a piece of engineering art, it is profound. You're allowed to think of any art as not your thing, or that it's crap or whatever have you, but be careful when you put a dollar value on it to distinguish it as legitimate or not. So to the people who say they live as cheap, I answer so was the hemp paper the Constitution was written on. So the big moment is coming up, the big reveal, and I want to start early because there's so much to say about it. Entire books have been written about this next half hour. In the film, the color is a lie, and black and white is the truth. There's all kinds of things you can read into this. Does this mean if you turn the clock back to black and white TV, all you got was the truth? Did the ghouls somehow invent color TV to start this whole scheme? Who knows? Right about this time, Ted Turner bought RKO and started colorizing a lot of old and black and white film for his TNT channel, starting with a Yankee Doodle Dandy. The blowback from that was immense, because many fans of these old films thought you were changing the intent of the director and, well, lying to the audience and changing the artistry. They Live uses black and white to convey a stark reality from what you could say is a subliminal dream state. This is not unlike The Wizard of Oz that uses black and white as reality and color as a fantasy world full of hidden meanings. In that case, the purpose is obviously reversed. So if you look closely, you'll see that everything with a message matches with the subliminal message. We're caught up in the image and we're missing the point. So when he sees Obey, the billboard is actually an advertisement for a computer company called Control Data. And the tagline of the company is, We're creating the transparent computing environment. So not only is it fitting, it's actually kind of funny. And when he looks at the ad for Come to the Caribbean, the message underneath is, marry and reproduce. So obviously men are looking at the billboard and liking what they are seeing, meaning the woman in the bikini with the large breasts is what I'm talking about, and they subliminally get a desire to fuck their way into a four-family household. So he's in a bit of a shock here, and you can see, and the sign for men's apparel, which is garnered to sell you something, tells you not to think about it, just buy, buy, buy. The sign that says sale tells you to consume. And the huge shock comes in the next animated image of Los Angeles. So look at Nada then. And now, Yojimbo is gone. He's left the building. And what you have here is a guy who just stumbled his way into something. He's way in over his head. And that is not Yojimbo. It's unlike many other reveals in the film. I remember watching this in the theater with my dad thinking, holy shit, wow. And to be honest, I didn't get that reaction at the reveal in Vertigo or at the ending of Citizen Kane. This is more like the Kaiser Soze reveal in The Usual Suspects. It was this shocking. I thought this was a film about aliens and for 30 minutes there were no aliens, so what the hell? Then you see all this stuff and you're thinking, what in the hell is this film about? And then the first ghoul pops up, and now you're in fucking La La Land. I mean, just look at his reaction when he sees his first ghoul. What's your problem? And people accuse Piper of not being able to act. Watch him here. That's bullshit. 
What's your problem? Slowly takes off the shades. Look at that reaction. I said, what's your problem? I'm not going to go through every single piece of message here and what it means, but I am going to paraphrase something here, and it's very important. According to Jonathan Lethem, who wrote a book on They Live for Deep Focus, there are four layers of this unreality. The first layer is what he calls manipulative fiction. Magazines, newspapers, billboards. This is open propaganda. The second layer is subversive. These are commands, the famous obey, apathy, etc. The most powerful of these isn't the obey, necessarily, but the shot here where he looks at the money in the vendor's hand and it says, this is your God. I mean, holy shit. That has got to be the harshest commentary on capitalism I think I have ever seen, and I've read the Communist Manifesto. That's lightweight compared to this. The third layer is the graffiti, they live, we sleep, and the opening shot, of course. The fourth layer is the hard-boiled William Friedkin type of cinematography, of real streets in a real city, no sets, etc. This picks up the shot control comment, and the random names stenciled on the wall in the alleyway where the fight occurs. They're not normal names that we would use or be used to, some of them look like anagrams and codes, perhaps for the ghouls to find their way to open markers or something similar. This ghoul is some yuppie's wife and she has a human servant who has to put up with her shit. And what does the packages say? No thought. Yeah, don't think about working for two bucks an hour for this bitch who just bought four pairs of Bruno Molly shoes. This isn't keeping that shit to yourself. This is literally, don't think. And here we enter what we would think would be a pretty innocuous place. And it turns out to be the worst place you could ever go. The supermarket. Or any market. This also reminds me way back when I was growing up and you'd go to HEB or wherever and they would have white cans that said beer and soup cans labeled soup. The absolute reverse of Andy Warhol. The hallmark of marketing was just about gone, beyond utilitarian. I imagine that is what communist markets must have looked like, but of course we know that's not true. The communists cared very much about how their products looked on the shelf. It was a source of pride. Here you have a human worried about getting ahead and working hard to get a promotion and the ghoul telling him to relax. That's what the ghouls want you to behave like. They want you to kill yourself to get ahead because it serves them. The famous shot of the politician with Obey in the background, and he's talking about accepting the status quo. Whatever you do, don't question authority. And Nada finally finds something so past the point of irony, he can't help but laugh. And in the background here, you see the alcohol and have to ask... Can't they control alcoholism then? Can't they put messages on it to say, not for addicts or some damn smart thing? But they don't. And why don't they? Because it's not in the ghouls' best interest for alcoholics to not buy a drink. The ghouls want a nation of addicts. That's what they are perpetuating. 
I've had the fortune to visit the People's Republic of China several times before it was a full-blown free economic zone like it is now. In communism, you have two levels of recognized propaganda. One type is what they call deep prop, and that's the long joining on of the endless amounts of books that have been written on communism. Karl Marx, Lenin, etc. Stalin and Mao wrote books that were required reading under communist rule. In the Soviet Union, you could never buy one book. They were packaged in four or five. If you wanted one book, then you had to buy a set that had three or four of these communist tracks by whoever the hell in the party you wanted to read. Or wanted you to read. Most people never read them. At most, they became book stops or later as firewood. Anyway, the second type of propaganda was what they called agitation propaganda, or agitprop, to use a term that sounds suspiciously like Orwellian newspeak. The idea behind agitprop was to use one word or short bursts of words in order to get the meaning across. In Soviet times, these would be put on banners like Long Live Stalin, etc. In Asia, this was easier because of the alphabet. You get used to this after a while when you're traveling. There's a lot of English posted and you have to just ignore it like you do commercialism and advertising in the West. The government does all of this, of course, but sometimes it is completely unintended. Once, I was in a train station getting a ticket somewhere in the south, and there was a sign above the uniform desk, and in English it said, Question Authority, and I tell you I laughed out loud. I asked if I could take a picture of it, but the guard got suspicious and said no. He didn't realize the irony of a sign that said that, not just in China, but above his desk. All it really meant was that if you have a question, just ask and we'll help you. But when you're living in a dictatorship, that's the last thing that you want your people to do. If you question authority, you usually get an answer in the form of a bullet. And now we move on to something crazy. He just killed two cops. We know they were ghouls, but they're still cops, even if they are ghouls. And Nada does something here that's very scary. He doesn't see the ghouls of humans because, well, they're not human. But beyond that, he separates them. He depersonalizes them. He labels them as not worth life. And he decides now he's going to kill as many of them as possible. So Nada decides for himself who lives and who dies. This is actually quite insane if you think about it, and Nada is going to carry that to the furthest extent by going on a killing spree. This is a way scary scenario. The film came out when there was a rash of veterans flipping out of the post office and shooting up the place. There was a whole spate of these shootings in the 80s, but instead of the shooting spree happening in a post office, where is it happening? A bank. And this is really the only place where killing a bunch of people is acceptable, as long as they are the workers, because everyone hates bankers. Just watch Stagecoach with John Wayne. Carpenter said the bubblegum line was all Piper, and I can believe that. Anyway, the social commentary in They Live is so paranoid it fits well into the history of the Cold War. It goes well with the invasion of the body snatchers. It came from outer space in 1957, Forbidden Planet in 1956, Roger Corman's Conquered the World in 1956, Quartermass 2, Enemy from Space in 1957, 
And that's interesting because Carpenter used Martin Quartermass as the pen name on Prince of Darkness for British Arthur Nigel Neal, who wrote the Quartermass experiment. If you look closely at the pickup shot after he shoots this probe, you will hear a bunch of stuff hitting the ground, but you don't actually see anything. I think I've seen this movie, I don't know, close to a hundred times, and I've never noticed that until last week. Carpenter probably didn't have the budget to just throw stuff up in the air and let it fall, but because the sound creation and the editing is so good, it tricks you. You think you saw stuff coming down. I swore I saw it my whole life, but it's not there, and I only picked up on it when watching the Blu-ray. This is a Hitchcock recreation from the 39 Steps. The introduction of Meg Foster, the woman with amazingly blue eyes, they just pierce you, and a bit of a peek into her character is when you find out her car is a BMW, and why is that? And she lives in a nice house up on the hill, and why is that? That should have told you something, and it should have tipped us off when she tells us she works at a TV station. So lots of stuff here to pick up on, but it flew past most people, because you're still trying to get over the messages, and the ghouls, and the killing spree, all of which happened in the span of 15 minutes. Talk about a shocker. The coincidence of the glasses is now that Nada has them on, he has become visible to the ghouls. And unlike the first half of the movie, when he wasn't wearing the sunglasses, we now think of Nada as cool, after he's killed a bunch of people, including cops. That's disturbing. I shit you not when I say that this is the street from the exit from the main parking garage at Universal City. There are a lot of directors who want to make a film and let you decide what it is, and they will deal with the repercussions of making a mistake. Carpenter is not like that. He's been very clear about they live. He viewed Reagan's term as fascism and bemoaned the rise of the fundamentalist right and the kind of mind control they're putting out. He also said, quote, My prediction is a few folks will get it, but most will say, what is he talking about? Is he talking about me? Then they'll get into their BMWs, drive home, take off their expensive clothes and Rolex watches, slip into their jacuzzis and say, nah, that's not about me. But he rejects the idea that his film is in any way Marxist. It is only anti-fascist. I don't think this film is Marxist. I think it has Marxist elements in it, the agitprop that I already talked about, for instance. But I do think there is an undercurrent here that is so far I haven't read anything about, and that's the subtle need for the Second Amendment, the one that gives us the right to bear arms, and mental illness. So if we are surrounded by these things, how are we ever going to hope to defeat them if we are not armed for struggle, and the murder spree in the finale pretty much lets us know that it's the only way to get out? So I think I can safely say that they live as pro-gun, and I'm sure lots of people, Carpenter included, would say that's all bullshit. But I also think that they live as trying to convey to us what it's like to be mentally ill. I already brought up the mentally ill earlier when we discussed the homeless situation. But what if Nada is just a mentally ill person and he's just made all of this up in his mind? The whole thing is really just a bunch of crap, it's all in his head. We can roll our eyes at this, but how normal is it for someone to walk into a bank and start taking people's heads off? I'd say that's not normal behavior, but we're okay with it here because the bad guys are dying. That's not just they live, don't get me wrong. 
That's every Hollywood movie ever made. It makes me think of that hysterical cut scene in Austin Powers where Rob Lowe talks about his best friend, who is an evil security guard for Dr. Evil. Sometimes he works late. And those characters deserve to die in every film, regardless of body count, because we deem them as a threat. We are othering them. That whole scenario. Something to think about. I don't care to enumerate the number of people who have gone batshit crazy, killed a few people, and when we find out later they had a mental illness. So there is no breaking point, really. When you're mentally ill, you don't suffer a psychosis break necessarily. You're on a path of increasing illness that culminates in someone else's death. In one case, it can be John DuPont. That's just an example. Sonata could be mentally ill and just experiencing this in his mind. And to tell you the truth, that would make me feel better. Much better than knowing that ghouls were running around, putting money in their own pockets. I do have a question that's been dogging me for a couple of years now. What is it that ghoul in the newsstand is buying? If he can see the messages, why is he buying the magazine? Or can he read both? And how is that related to each other like the Caribbean poster and the Obey sign? There's a shot coming up in a couple of minutes, an overhead shot of Holly smashing the bottle over Nada's head. When I saw this in the theater, it took me by surprise, and I imagine a lot of people the same way. Piper doesn't go through the window, but he cuts so quick that when you see the stuntman come out from the exterior shot, you're sold that he did. You think that he did. I could have sworn that he did, but he never touches the glass, and this is Carpenter up to his suggestive tricks again, just like the probe that blows up and no pieces hit the ground. This hit is not just a hit, it's the apex of the film, because she hits him right on the same time as he turns on the TV. It's as if she doesn't want him to see what's on the TV, because it will really unravel the ghoul's plans. Find the B-roll to this scene. It shows them setting up the camera and executing the hit. It's simply amazing. There is a midway in the film, and this is it, and we spoke about it before, there being a first, a second, and a third act. There is, but this scene is where the movie turns. It turns metaphorically and physically when Holly does this amazing spin with the bottle. You can see this as a middle school game, spin the bottle, only this time instead of getting a kiss with the hot redhead, Nada kisses the sky. Look how detached she looks. This is beyond a hostage scenario now, and she mentions she works at Studio 54, I mean Cable 54, and Nada is given all the pieces, but he can't put it together. This seems implausible in the story, but really, he's been hit with a lot today, including the bottle. He's suffering from information overload. There's also a bit of three days of the condor here, Stockholm Syndrome, a bit of out of sight going on. And as the only girl in the script, you hope this works out. You're hoping for a good ending, but you know it's just not possible. Here's the shot, coming up. He tries to stand. Spin. Crack. Push. Excellent. Reminds me of the shovel scene in Psycho. So let's go back to the connection to Reagan for a minute while Nada continually finds himself in very admirable wide shots. I want to quote this paragraph in full because I simply can't paraphrase it. It's from D. Harlan Wilson's They Live on Cultographics, an excellent book. Quote, 
Reagan's favoring of the rich was epitomized by this trickle-down economics policy, which provided tax exemptions to the upper classes in the hope that it would indirectly benefit the poor population. It didn't. Feinstein explains the policy in greater depth. President Reagan believed that if taxes were lowered, people, especially the wealthy, would have more spare funds and would invest more money in corporations. If American businessmen prospered as a result, they would, in turn, create more jobs and give pay raises to their employees. This was seen as trickle-down effect that would help poor people. So in 1981, and again in 1986, Reagan reduced rates for corporate and personal income taxes. Reaganomics, as this economic policy was called, was criticized by many as unfair to the poor. Many complained that the benefits never actually trickled down far enough to help lower-income people. However, Reaganomics was extremely popular among the yuppies and with the businessmen to whom it gave financial advantages. In 1988, at the end of the second term, Reagan left the federal government over $2 trillion in debt. And that is simply a fact. Now, if you're looking for me to defend Ronald Reagan, you've come to the wrong place. I reject the idea that he was an evil mastermind out to fuck the poor like Marcus Crassus in ancient Rome. Obviously, he had an ideology that he followed, and he couldn't adjust it when reality hit. Two trillion in 1988 is huge. We didn't start paying off this debt until Bill Clinton struck a deal with Newt Gingrich in 1996. Then we had a balanced budget that lasted until we invaded Afghanistan in 2001. Even then, expenditures really didn't get out of control until the second Gulf War in the spring of 2003. So the trillions stacked up, for sure. In light of this, Bush's tax cuts that came before the invasion of Afghanistan look very bad. His adding $3 trillion by the end of term for two wars that couldn't end looks even worse. But the real question is, why, given this lesson of trickle-down economics, did we as a country not learn our lesson? In 2008, we bailed out banks and auto companies And in 2009, we spent even more money trying to shore up the economy with bullshit shovel-ready jobs. So right now, the national debt is $19 trillion. And over $10 trillion of those dollars were spent in the last eight years. So if you're going to demonize Ronald Reagan for fucking the poor and bailing out banks and running up our debt for the sake of yuppies, fine. I agree with you. You're right. Congratulations. Would you now please share that opinion of Mr. Obama? If you say yes, you win a prize. If you say no, then you are now a hypocrite. I hate politics, and I hate getting into politics except as film history, and I hate to bring this up, but we are watching They Live, which I planned out months ago, and it never occurred to me that it was going to happen right after a federal goddamn election when, as Americans, we are always divided, and this year, more divided than ever. This wasn't intentional, but They Live speaks remarkably to our time 30 years later. And in this whole fascism stage, 
Let's look at all of these protests happening recently. What are these people worrying about? Misogyny? Check. Capitalism? Check. Megalomania? Check. You can go down the list all you want, but I'm willing to bet the real thing people are worried about, not just Hollywood types and the people with money, but I mean real people, the people who won out in the popular vote, those people, they are scared shitless of fascism. And who would you be less surprised to see as a ghoul through your Hoffman lenses than Donald Trump? I think I'd be more surprised if my coffee was hot. Carpenter knew tackling the subject was going to be a huge risk. He told his agent, quote, I recognize the danger. People who go to the movies in vast numbers these days don't want to be enlightened. Hollywood is a fantasy crankshaft, to be sure. But despite that risk and his opinion, this film was gold then and it's gold now. Despite its cheap effects and everything else, it doesn't matter because it's a good movie. The fight scene is upon us, and so we're going to witness the second movie moment in this film that it's famous for. This is one of those memorable moments when I saw this in a theater and hadn't seen anything like it. I got into a car with my dad at the Cineplex Augustus in West Houston, and the first thing he said was, man, that fight scene was unbelievable. Everyone knows this fight scene is legendary, so let's take a look at it. Did you notice that Nada never bothered to pick up the money? Because he knows what it is, really. This may be the greatest fight scene in cinema history, and that's a tall comment when you think of everything you've seen in The Matrix or Mission Impossible movies. Keith and Piper rehearsed for two months in Carpenter's backyard. Sometimes real contact was made, and Carpenter picked out three real wrestling moves to bring a street realism, not just Piper's obvious ability. This fight used three cameras, and lasts almost a whole reel. Carpenter used everything that he shot and never thought about cutting it. The asphalt, if you look carefully, is actually a pad placed into the ground and sprayed all one color. Beyond the mechanics of the fight, there's a ton of other things going on here. The obvious conclusion is racial division, but that's not what this is really about. This is about Frank trying to get Nada to see the world from his point of view, and Nada trying to get Frank to see the world for what it really is. So in a sense, they're trying to help each other. The only racial tone here is the white man trying to explain to the black man that he is still a slave, and he needs to see what is really going on. This is a kind of mirror to the color and black and white dialectic we spoke of earlier. Color is a lie, so Frank can't see the ghouls. Black and white, Nada, can see them. Jonathan Lethem wrote that, quote, African Americans might find that the view through the Hoffman lenses offers an unbearable degree of indignity. Still a slave, fool. Still a fool, slave. One of the biggest fans of They Live is the philosopher Slavon Zizek, who wrote a book on his film called They Live, Hollywood as an Ideological Machine. Zizek also did a documentary on Netflix about film ideology that was excellent, and he starts it by referencing this very scene. I want to quote from his book because it has an excellent thing to say. Forgive the length. Quote, It's a very strange fight. 
There are moments of exchanges of friendly smiles, and it's itself totally irrational. Why doesn't Frank put the glasses on just to satisfy his friend? The one explanation is that he knows that his friend wants him to see something dangerous, to attain a prohibited knowledge from which could totally spoil the relative peace of his daily life. The violence staged here is a positive violence, a condition of liberation. The lesson is that our liberation from ideology is not a spontaneous act, an act of discovering our true self, and that's what I find convincing in this simple scene. Just think how it totally turns around the usual New Age idea of critique of ideology, which would be, in an everyday life, we have ideological glasses. Learn to put them on, take them off, the glasses, and see with your own eyes reality the way it is. No, unfortunately it doesn't work like this liberation hurts. You have to be forced to put your glasses on. Unquote. The glasses are three bucks and not as going to damage a $200 windshield over them. This is when Frank just loses it because he respects property. There are two types of They Live fans, those who love the fight scene and those who don't, and I think it hinges on what Z-Sex says about ideology. Either you want to put the glasses on, or you don't. The end of this scene is the beginning of the third act, so the first act you have an art film, and the second act is an action film. The third act is a sci-fi film, and every transition we have from act to act is very closely aligned with the 30-minute timer. Carpenter used a Panavision Panaflex anamorphic lens to make something cheap look huge. There are wide and sweeping shots in this film that surprise you. Even the underside of the house where Nada spends the night after Foster throws him out the window. Here he is using a Panaglide, which is one of the first steady cams. This gives the movement a stable motion and the fight looks more like a ballet, which was Carpenter's intention. I find it amusing that for decades filmmakers sought to make a camera more durable, to take it everywhere, and develop technology to make it look like it was still on a track or a crane when it wasn't. And now people do shit on their iPhones and create software to rock the image so it looks like cheap shit made by someone filming a Friday night football game. It is strange how the back wall kind of mimicked a wall at a ballet school, and when they travel left now, it looks like a bathroom stall. This fight gets more and more bizarre as we go. It also kind of reminds me of the artwork in the CD book for the Guns of Roses album Appetite for Destruction, which I think came out the same year They Live came out, or maybe in 1987. Jonathan Lethem describes this scene as more gay porn, and the repetitive nut checks, if silhouetted, could look like two men having rough sex. I want to quote Wilson again in his book on They Live, since at this moment Nada and Frank are exposed. He says, quote, They Live is a movie about exposure. Exposure to class divisions. Exposure to racial trauma. Exposure to enemies of the body and of consciousness. Exposure to patriarchal authorities. Most of all, exposure to the various realities that activate the human condition. Hence, overexposure. The Hoffman lenses represent the convergence of this affliction. The Maison scene that they reveal look like overexposed photographs, whitewashed of color, stripped of finer nuances. In terms of race, it is crucial that reality avails itself in black and white, laying bare the specter of racial conflict that, at the very least, undergirds and empowers Nada versus Frank. 
more imperative is the issue of violence, psychologically, ideologically, symbolically, and physically. They live's overexposure of violent outbreaks trumps all other issues and constitutes the thematic heartbeat of the film. Unquote. And here we enter a kind of anticlimactic stage of the film. It deliberately slows down. Some say it is too slow. But what else do you do after a fight like that? In the hotel, we get a glimpse into Nada's past, and we don't like it very much. There is no mention of his mother, but his father was abusive. We know that much. Piper himself is very spare about his upbringing. He doesn't ever really talk about his parents at all. He did leave home at a young age, like Nada, and it is true that he managed to feed himself by playing bagpipes. He was homeless at the age of 13, and later on found he had a knack for wrestling. For someone from such a background to rise in fame, and his role in this film is really unbelievable. It's the American dream, however brief you think it is, and that might be the only proof that there are no ghouls. Ghouls would never allow Piper to get ahead in life, unless he made a deal with him. Do you think he ever would? Nada is warning Frank of the headache you get when you wear the glasses too long. He told Holly it was like a high and then you crash, but in reality it works in reverse. When you put the glasses on, you are seeing what is real and so you come off your high then. Taking the glasses off puts you back into a chronic trance. This is to make you feel normal. And what do normal people do? They conform. They consume. They obey. They marry and reproduce. This goes back to what the man with the beard on the TV was trying to say using the broadcast from the church. Quote, We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness. The audience gets a headache, not because of the hacked broadcast, but because of the static of the subliminal broadcast trying to get through. I'll take this moment to make a mention of the poster for They Live. It shows Nada sliding his glasses off his nose and seeing a ghoul, the ghoul's reflection in his glass lenses. This is a bit of an oversight. If the ghouls could be reflected, everyone could see them. There's a whole rabbit hole you could go down just on this one little oversight. I'm going to skip it and just chalk it up to the artist and carpenter just not catching on or thinking it wasn't important. The other interesting thing about the poster is how it is remarkably similar to the poster for Risky Business, which came out just a few years before They Live. It's Tom Cruise, of course, sliding his glasses down his nose and seeing Rebecca De Mornay in her underwear. Most people would probably want glasses like that. Most people would rather see her than a bunch of ghouls with cheese dip from 1957 all over their faces. Just before we get into the finale, which starts as a kind of retelling of the clearing of Justiceville, I want to get back to ideology and Slavoj Zizek for a bit. Zizek writes in his book on They Live that in the 1960s, the Communist Party of the United States was convinced the U.S. government was controlling their population through some powerful drug that was secretly distributed somehow, possibly in the water supply, and it was this drug that was responsible for the Communists' inability to make headway in America. This is hysterical for two reasons. 
First, there were Americans in the same time period who didn't want fluoride in their water system because they thought it was a communist conspiracy to drug them. This is well documented, and not just by John Birch Society types. The second reason is, well, leave it to the communists to propose a conspiracy theory even more fucked up than a capitalist one. I should note, in full disclosure, Zizek is an avowed Marxist. So, uh, how did the underground find Frank? Easy, who wears sunglasses at night? Not just Corey Hart. And if you didn't catch it, there was a dusk shot there to tell you that you are now in the home stretch of the film. The doomed meeting has prompted some critics to ask, has there ever been a less effective armed underground than this? The answer, of course, is yes. The Weatherman Underground, for one. The SLA. How about the 20 July plotters? And that's all I have to say about that. I apologize for bringing up Don Siegel's Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956 so much. That film is an amazing one, and of course it has been analyzed to death and related to the underlying menace of communism. The fear that at that time being so overpowering. Here we see the ghouls on TV arguing that there is too much sex and violence, much like a conservative Republican Party would do in the 1980s. So the parallel Carpenter is making is very much mirroring the body snatchers. The ghouls are just as evil as the eggs. Carpenter would argue that they are worse because unlike the body snatchers, the ghouls here have already won. I've seen this guy in dozens of films. In every film he plays a biker. The green hue and the grand doors here remind me of the Matrix. So what is the bigger picture here? We are living in a world of ideology. You can name it and define it however you want, but very few people think that it is healthy. When you try to break through this ideology, bad things happen. People get killed. Wars occur. Poor people march and die by the thousands. And why? So someone else can make a buck. And whether you live in Russia and saw your standard of living destroyed by the oligarchs, or you live in the Middle East and your life is in constant turmoil because of a struggle against dictators, or you live in Africa ruled by a bunch of fucking thugs who every once in a while get thrown out so they can live a rich exile in the French Riviera, or in South America where you're just trying to increase your standard of living to the West, or even in the West itself, where we're trying to make just a little bit more an equal society among ourselves. We are not winning. Ideology is winning. We are losing. Every time we buy something or change a channel or bitch about the only two losers that somehow won the right from us to be president. Come on, folks. They live is real. I always thought it would be awesome if you had some Pink Floyd playing in the background here, maybe from the wall or on the chalkboard there, someone write, we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control. That'd be pretty cool. This actor is Peter Jason, playing the underground organizer. He's been in tons of stuff. He was recently on the podcast I Was There Too, talking about working with Carpenter on They Live. Carpenter is a big fan of his. The professor, who we assume is dead already, slides his glasses off his nose just like the poster. Even the name Cable 54, of course, is a joke. It's the trendy channel that all the trendy people watch where all the trendy people work, like Studio 54 or Seinfeld on NBC. So Holly is going to come, and how she got here we'll never know. 
not really, but is suspicious when she volunteers the information that she works for Cable 54, and it must be clean in terms of the signal. They know it is not. So either she is lying and is turned, or she's a mole. Remember when we see her later, she's in the studio, and you have to wonder why is she there? She went from the shootout to work? Most people would just go home. Another loophole. But whatever. Holly looks like Lauren Bacall in the scene here. There are only three explanations to Holly. First, she either learns the ghouls before or after her visit, joins the underground but is corrupted after the meeting. Second, she learns the ghouls then joins them to go to the meeting. Third, she's been corrupted the whole time. I'm in favor of the last one. The upcoming riot scene, as I said, is a kind of reinvention of the clearing of Justiceville, only this time they're actually killing people, not just arresting them and disappearing them like Castro. I did read somewhere that in East L.A. in the early 80s, there was actually a Justiceville located at a park where 72 homeless people lived. It apparently had somewhat of a vibrant life before the police were called and was cleared out. This happens a lot in our society, and I think there is a conflict going on. We want to believe the homeless can make a life and place themselves in a place like a park, and everything will be fine. They can either take care of themselves, or a church across the street can feed them soup every night. But I think most people's reactions to clearing a park is related to that fiasco on the grounds of Berkeley campus in the 1960s, when all the hippies got together and built a park on a city block that was owned by the state of California. It was called People's Park, and everyone shipped in and loved it, and it was all right with the world. Rainbows, puppies didn't poop there. But unfortunately, reality set in when the bulldozers showed up one day to destroy it because, get this, the state of California had already earmarked money and a timeline to construct something there, and the hippies never bothered to check. They just said this park is ours, started building on it without asking anybody, and had a great time. The governor of California at the time was none other than, you guessed it, Ronald Reagan, and he bore the brunt of the blowback in an absolutely amazing press conference that you can see on YouTube. The press simply could not believe the state had plans dating back six months and concocted this theory that Reagan and his evil conservative masterminds cooked up this building in just a few days so they could roll bulldozers and laugh maniacally at the hippies who couldn't believe the far right's hatred of green landscaping. When Reagan tells the press the land was portioned and earmarked in advance that had nothing to do with this park, the press cajoles him. When he says the land is owned by the state of California and the state can do anything they want with it, the press corps just looks at him with a face that says, So what's your point? You hate young people. It's awesome. Give it a watch. Now we're finally in the battle. He reminds me of this fantastic documentary called Festival Express by the Males' Brothers. They followed Janis Joplin and the Grateful Dead across Canada in the summer of 1970. This was a year after Woodstock, and in Toronto there was a riot because the hippies wanted a free concert. When they challenged the police, these polite Canadians beat the fuck out of a couple of cops, one getting hit on the head with a bottle, like nada, and the Grateful Dead is on camera in this amusing scene in which they defend 
both the cops' right not to get hurt protecting the band and the band's right to earn money when they go on tour. Wonderful stuff. So here we are in another massacre. No ghouls in these shots. The masks on the ghouls are extremely cheap because of the budget, and I also think it's easy artistry for subliminal messages, and that's why Carpenter's shot in black and white, so you don't see how cheap they are. And you ever notice that no black person in this film is ever revealed as a ghoul? Just a thought. You'll see a lot of pickup shots in this scene, and throughout they live, and they are very seamless despite the fact they took place after principal photography. Carpenter would edit the films himself, and usually sometimes he'd need a few seconds and shoot pickup shots in his garage. One of the most famous ones was an escape from New York when Kurt Russell is on the Brooklyn Bridge trying to get off with Adrian Bardot, and she's with him and gets crushed by a car. Russell looks down, and we see a cut to Barbeau, who was Carpenter's wife, and that pickup shot was done in his garage under his car. He didn't do it during photography. And afterwards, he cut it together, he realized he needed it, and went out there and shot it and cut it in. Brilliant stuff. That's how good he is. You can't see a lot of this hanky-panky going on, it's just seamless. Carpenter is a kind of hokey filmmaker. The more money his movies cost, the worse they are. We talked about that before. He's like Roger Corman, only you've actually seen his films. Ever notice how many Carpenter movies are in your collection? I've got, I don't know most of his movies, and anytime someone asks me who is your favorite director, I always mold this over, and I never think of John Carpenter. I'm always thinking of Spielberg or Wells or Fellini or even Eastwood, and yet, how many of those films do I actually have in my collection? I mean, as a count or a percentage, I have almost everything John Carpenter has, except for Christine, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and In the Mouth of Madness. There were a few others, but I really enjoy his films. I'm not a fan of Assault on Pre-C-13 like everyone else is, but I love Black Moon Rising, and my favorite Carpenter movie of all time is Big Trouble in Little China. When the hell did we get into a Sam Peckinpah movie? And here is the Hail Mary. We've got our heroes out of the situation, and it's a sci-fi, so we can do whatever we want. That's fine. Thank God we invented the whatever that got us down there. I think one of the reasons why people don't generally re-watch Carpenter's films, even if they do like them, is due to his endings. It's not just They Live, but The Thing, the, In the Mouth of Madness, Christine, Prince of Darkness especially, and even other films which have a subtle bad ending like Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. Those endings were kind of good, I guess, but then when you see something right before the credits roll, that makes you think it's not going to be as good a clean ending as you thought. Pliskin and the audio tape comes to mind, Jack Burton carrying an extra load on the Pork Chop Express. They lived as a bit of the reverse. You have the down ending first, but then in the last few cuts show you that yes, the revolution is starting, and you think maybe it's going to be okay, especially with the last shot, which every movie should end on in my opinion. This was filmed in the Biltmore in Los Angeles where the real elitists would gather to do real harm to the working class while being served by the working class. It was built by the Vanderbilts. Nada and Frank don't stand out in the back despite their obvious difference in wardrobe. This could be because others have done this in the past and because it's inconceivable to the ghouls that anyone could get access to their underground lair. But they do look ridiculous hiding in their guns. It's worse than that god-awful scene in Scarface where the hitmen are hiding their Mac-10s under the table napkins. The speaker even looks like some Vanderbilt from a hundred years ago. He's got the Cornelius mustache. 
and looks like he belongs on the thousand dollar bill with Grover Cleveland or something. If you recognize that weird looking device they were held in the hallway, it's actually Egon Spengler's psychokinetic detector from Ghostbusters. You'll see it again soon. And then soon you'll see the Drifter character who turned off the TV in Justiceville. He has what Lethem calls a sleazy opportunism, a cockroach of the human spirit, not so readily snuffed out. Fascinating. Yes, I liken him to thousands of French who collaborated with the Nazis, and then after the war said, why are you blaming me? What did you expect me to do? So very quickly we get into the TV station and what that means in They Live. We've discussed it a bit already. First, why didn't Carpenter choose film? It's an interesting omission. He seems to have avoided film as a tool for the ghouls at all and instead focused only on the TV. We can look at this a number of ways. The immediate conspiracy being that Carpenter is very careful to point the finger away from the industry he works in because he doesn't dare accuse the people who control his movie budget of being ghouls. Add the notion that Hollywood has a large influential Jewish population and you'll see everyone running away from that parallel as fast as fucking possible. It would be interesting, however, if not a saw a film poster. Good Morning Vietnam, for example, was released the same time as They Live. It makes you wonder what would that poster say. Linthing says, sentimentalize war. So go ahead and hide that Desert Eagle 357 under your belt. The transport room here is really cool to look at, but then to contemplate it makes you kind of sick. The ghouls are yuppie entrepreneurs, we know that, so the Earth is just another developing planet. Drifter says, we're their third world. Do you notice when Drifter, that's this character's name, when he talks about serving under the ghouls, he's talking with a thick southern accent. Frank must love that a lot. Lintham calls this machine a laboriously unnecessary transport device. Not many critics love this scene at all. I thought it was pretty neat. It brings in a lot of extensions of capitalism from the past. Colonialism, imperialism, exploitation, everything we've done wrong in Africa, South America, and Asia. But back to the TV... I'm sure if you're listening to me drone on, you're familiar with the Karl Marx adage that religion is the opium of the masses. Well, here, in They Live, you can say the same about real TV. TV is the opium of the masses. Marx says that religion creates a false happiness to people who cannot see the truth of their sad situation as capitalist slaves. Well, I'm not touching that, but I would say that TV has become the new master, TV is the new opium war which sells us products using image power and creates a culture where we do nothing but consume in order to consume more. This is the technical structure the ghouls have created in order to rule over us. They're not just changing our process of thinking. They are reprogramming us to change our behavior to suit their needs, to have us as their capitalist slaves. There's so much going on in the next few minutes, it's hard to keep up. First, we're in the middle of another workplace shooting, and this should terrify us. Second, the shooting spree, as it goes on, Nada finds a pregnant woman holding a coffee pot, and he asks her where Holly is. The woman is terrified, 
and this doesn't speak well to Nada, who's holding her roughly and brandishing a gun. But her pregnancy tells us the world is going to go on. That baby may not have an easy life, but at least it will be free. And the presence of the pregnancy is a condemnation of this hyper-masculine behavior in the hallways. Sonata is not the future. Rambo is not the future. If we are lucky, it won't be John Connor either. And the next dash is the race to the rooftop. It's not an easy trip. This building looks like a maze, and they're a building to find their way through it mimics the rat test. It won't matter if they make it, they still won't make it. Finding Holly seems to be a victory, but if you look at her face, she is genuinely surprised to see Nada, because she perhaps thought he was wiped out in the cleansing operation before. She is fast on her feet, however, and she gives us the tip-off of the ending when she pulls off the biggest bummer of the film, which is when she turns on Frank. Throughout all of this, we see a lot of the black and white cuts, which have been so prevalent in the past hour, but mainly stay in color. We know what we see is a lie, and Nada and Frank are trying to get people to take Morpheus's red pill, so to speak, and wake everybody up. So this is like the end of the invasion of the body snatchers with Nada screaming wake up, or even at the end of Network, not a movie I like by the way, as if he's screaming I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. The last parallel is Pleasantville, a fine film, especially in the last shot of the topless girl in this film. In Pleasantville, two teens from modern color era get sucked into a 50s TV show in black and white. When everyone in town finds something about themselves they didn't think was possible, they change into color. This color is seen as dangerous and subversive because it is true. So they live as a bit reversed only when the broadcast is damaged. You don't see black and white because the Hoffman lenses only work in monotone. You see everything in color. You don't need the Hoffman lenses anymore. So when Nada finally makes it to the roof, Holly drops her voice down to a Lauren Bacall octave range and actually entices him by saying, quote, Come inside with me. This is a double entendre that makes him blink, like that Caribbean billboard appeals to his manhood. This predicts the last shot, which looks like a woman is coming down off an orgasm. When Nada surprises Holly by shooting her, we see her fall down like a vampire would rise out of his coffin in Nosferatu or a Christopher Lee film. This surprises us not just because he has an affinity for Holly, but because she is his first human kill. When the signal, see the coffee pot there? When the signal goes down, we see a bunch of quick cuts that show the different effects of the ghouls being unmasked. After the newscasters comes two ghouls, that are reminiscent of Siskel and Ebert debating sex and violence on the screen. One ghoul says, quote, I'm fed up with it. Filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint, unquote. So with this last shot of the topless woman, and of course this is after Nada shoots the finger practically at the camera, Carpenter is saying a big fuck you to his critics, whom he compares to ghouls trying to control his art. This can't be too far off considering Carpenter brokered a deal to make three films, including They Live, for almost nothing for exchange for full creative control. The subtext of this is both TV critics 
were ghouls having two sides of an argument. So if we were to watch a contemporary political show in the 80s, like the McLaughlin Group, for example, would we see half ghouls or all ghouls? And is the debate then fixed? Is the debate lined up for us so we feel like we're having a debate? Like we feel like we're having choices? When in fact, we don't have any choice. How many of you felt like you had a choice this past November 8th? Did you feel like you had a choice on election day? Or did you feel like your two options were both ghouls? Here is Spengler's ectometer again. This narrative is a foretelling a lot of conspiracy theories we see in modern-day America. 9-11 truthers believe something subversive happened on 9-11 because they are convinced the system is rigged against them. Well, I'll be the first to say they're wrong about 9-11, but I don't think that they're wrong about the system. I think it's run by ghouls. And things, after they live, don't particularly make us feel any better. And I'm not just talking about 9-11. In the 90s, you had a bunch of homegrown issues rage out of control. There was the Ruby Ridge standoff, the Waco tragedy, and for those of you who say fuck those radicals, I will ask you how radical were those 14 kids and two unborn babies who died in Waco. After this was the Oklahoma City bombing in which even more kids were blown to bits, and all throughout this time the Unabomber was wreaking havoc. And while all this was going on, it seems the law enforcement and legal response was either incompetent or in some sort of cabal that had no interest in seeing these issues resolved without a loss of life. So in the 80s and 90s, just as now, you have a huge segment of our population that feel as though they are not being listened to. They feel their vote doesn't matter. And that is evidenced by this past election garnering the fewest vote in 20 years. More people voted for George W. Bush than for Donald Trump. More people voted for John Kerry than for Hillary Clinton. I think that spells out dissatisfaction in the past as well as now. That everything seems to be fixed against us as citizens. That we are losing our power, our lives, and our future. And They Live encapsulates this feeling into 90 minutes. It fights the notion that we live in an equal meritocracy that is evidenced by other films from this time like Working Girl, which everyone loves and I hate, Cocktail, which has not aged well, and The Secret of My Success, which everyone hates and I love. So I guess I'm a bit of a rare bird when it comes to film, but I do feel disenfranchised. I do think that our society feels disenfranchised, and when you feel that way, you find yourself agreeing with cheap B-movies from the 80s that have a stunning impact on your thinking. Carpenter has admitted that Reagan was the target of They Live, but I think that over time, They Live has come to have a different meaning. Ben Stiller had a great line in a film called The Zero Effect from 1999. He said there weren't good guys and bad guys anymore, there's just a bunch of guys. And I think that now we can say, well, there's just a bunch of ghouls too, and they don't care about party affiliation. And then a rapid close of this wonderful film, a helicopter representing oppression, Rowdy Roddy Piper giving the ghouls the finger, the fakery of TV news, and how it is all biased, cheese dip in 1957. No independent thought allowed, not even in film reviews about zombies and sci-fi films. The ideas that ghouls are everywhere among us, even in our hangouts and bars, for instance. 
And in the end, we do what we are programmed to do. Which is what? To get fucked by the ghouls. Marry and reproduce. Right? Right. Hey, what's wrong, baby? Thanks for hanging out with me while we watched They Live. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched the commentary on in your home or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blogs at www.thatdylandavis.com where you can leave a comment under the Super 70 Podcast tab. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail and Joshua Cunningham. You can reach them both on SoundCloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdylandavis and find my books on Amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time on the Thracian Sharonese.